what they could have done and possibly should have done is had a crawl that said, you're watching a Champions Tour event, which wouldn't exist were it not for Arnold Palmer, on a channel, the golf channel, that wouldn't exist were it, were, were it not for Arnold Palmer. And if you played high school golf, as you and I uh, did, Jeff, and you were not considered a dork, it's because of Arnold Palmer. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I'm Jeff Ritter. The golf world lost one of the all-time greatest people Sunday evening when Arnold Palmer passed away in Pennsylvania. He was 87 years old. Arnie will forever be remembered as the king, of course, with his legacy spreading not only across golf in America, but on the international sporting landscape. Today, I'm with a man who knew Palmer very well. In fact, he knew him for 29 years. I just found out before uh, pushing the record button. It's Sports Illustrated senior writer, Michael Bamberger. Michael, thank you for joining the podcast. You've had a busy day, I know, sharing your Arnold Palmer stories. Where do you begin to describe the legacy of this man? Well, you know, he was an old man when he died. He was 87. Uh, my, my dad is uh, two years older and my mom a year younger. And uh, I didn't grow up in a golfing family. But for a lot of people who did, uh, who are my age and, and you're younger, Jeff, um, we grew up with the legacy of Arnold without having ever really seen Arnold hit a shot in anger, which is an amazing thing how prominently he is in our lives, even though we miss the whole show. Yeah. And how did that happen? That happened because for many of us, our mothers and fathers were deeply attached to Arnold, and we grew up with the, with, with the legend of the man. So he has mixed generations in a way that is truly unique, and it all goes back to his character, yeah. which is um, intensely warm, personal, direct, unpretentious. And um, Nicholas was a far greater golfer, and Tiger Woods was probably a great, more great, uh, far greater talent. But there'll never be anybody who ever has the impact on golf that this man had. It's funny you say that. There's so many people today who never saw. Arnold Palmer play a tournament, yet he has this massive impact. On, his legacy just spans across the globe. It's not just it's not just golf. It's Arnold Palmer the drink. It's Arnold Palmer, you know, the gentleman, the hospital in Florida. What do you think he'll be remembered most for? For the people who are younger and didn't see him hit a shot. I'm I'm thirty I'm thirty eight for a few more weeks, and uh, I have a few stories from him, but. I never. I'm one of those guys that you that you mentioned that I didn't see him play at tournament golf. Yet I'm always going to remember Arnold Palmer. What do you think will will stick out for that? For you that, know, I, that I, I I asked Arnold once about uh, about the drink. I said, you know, what what's it like for you when someone orders an Arnold Palmer in front of you? And he said, it's a little embarrassing. Oh. And I thought that answer was so telling because it was so modest and it was and it was from him it was truthful. Uh, he was really a largely a truthful person, which was. Uh, which was part of his appeal. But anyway, I'm thinking of the IC because, of course, that IC will be called an Arnold Palmer forever. Uh, now the question is, are people going to have enough curiosity to figure out who the man is behind the drink? And the answer is probably not likely. So could he fade away from the public consciousness? He could. Um, what's significant here is, is he going to fade away from the community of golfers? And I don't think he will because I think – and you saw this, you see this in hockey. To some degree, you've seen it in other sports. Um, Gretzky, Gretzky inherited a mantle from Gordie Howe or from whomever, and he handed it down to Messier or whomever in the next generation. Um, those are bad examples, but, but roughly, you have the, the, the idea here. 
um, Arnold's legacy of gentlemanly behavior on the golf course, trying your guts out, playing your ass off, but still treating your opponent like a gentleman. That's his legacy. To say nothing of how he treated fans, reporters, corporate sponsors, and just you know regular small-time businesses, that's his legacy. And it's really up to Ricky Fowler and all his, and who's doing a great job of it, um, and all his and his generation to decide for themselves, are they going to pick up the mantle of Arnold Palmer and continue to lead that kind of life? I mean, Arnold r- was repulsed by players coming in wearing caps, uh, selling their products. Uh, he didn't think that was an appropriate thing to do. Well, that barn, that, you know, that barn door is open and, and the animals have left. But there are still other basic things in golf, basically the grace with which one wins and loses, that is tantamount to his legacy. 29 years you knew him. How did you first meet him? What was that? What was that first thing? Uh, I was a reporter on the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer in uh, 1987, and he was playing a, a senior event in Philadelphia. Just a quick aside here. When, when Arnold, when we first heard uh, last night, and Jeff, maybe the same was for you, uh, did you hear roughly about maybe 9 o'clock last night? Yeah, about then. And uh, so right around when I first heard, like, the whisper of it maybe is true. I went to Golf Channel, and uh, and I saw that they were showing a, uh, a senior event. And uh, our editor and, and uh, colleague Mark Godich and I were joking about this earlier. There should have been a crawl on the bottom because th- they didn't have it confirmed yet, I imagine, which is why mm-hmm. they didn't uh, break into their uh, uh, into their their telecast of the senior event. I'm not sure why what actually was happening on that end, of course. But what they could have done and possibly should have done is had a crawl that said, you're watching a Champions Tour event which wouldn't exist were it not for Arnold Palmer on a channel, the golf channel, that wouldn't exist were it, were, were it not for Arnold Palmer. And if you played high school golf, as you and I uh, did, Jeff, and you were not considered a dork, it's because of Arnold Palmer. So, you know, in other words... The, uh, the, and have a good the, night. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the definite... Pardon me, Jeff. Where were we going here? Just your a first ago? encounter with. Thank you very much. Nineteen eighty-seven. Good yeah. memory, Jeff. Yeah. You see, it's nice to be thirty-eight. Everybody who meets Arnold has the story from it. I want to. I'm going to share mine, but I still Good. want to hear your first. You go story. first. Yeah. Go Me? ahead. You yes. want to hear my story? Yeah, absolutely. So my first story. I met him twice. I'll tell. I will tell the first one now. It was uh, we were given time. He he wanted to promote something about his hospital, some initiative, and there was a spare hour. For somebody on staff and somehow I was in the right meeting at the right time and put my hand up just a little bit faster than anybody else could have and I got to go. So I went to his place in Latrobe, uh, brought a photographer with us. Let's interrupt here for a second. Oh, his place in Latrobe. Okay. Yeah, his, ho- yes. his house in Latrobe. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So in the office there or in the house itself? In the in the house, but in the kind of in that front room where he receives people. It's like a it's almost like a museum in itself. He okay, you're actually in the office right next to the house, but go you ahead. Call that, okay, yeah, yeah the, it's the, adjacent the, to the house. Right. And then you go in and he's got his Looks desk a little bit like the Augusta National Clubhouse. It's white bit. like that. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So, you know, you're surrounded by all this memorabilia. He's got, you know, replica trophies. He's got the uh, the ten dollar bill from Eisenhower framed on the wall. And then we had hired a freelance videographer, so to do some things for the camera, he, we went into his workshop and he pulls out a club and regrips that in 30 seconds. And it just, it was just so cool. It was so surreal. And he had this way of just disarming you immediately and making you feel really good and making you feel like we friend, we're friends for years within mm-hmm. five minutes. You know, mm-hmm. you just feel very comfortable with him. But the thing that struck me was the, the way that he's funny 
he's just a very, very direct. And you wrote this very well in your obituary to him. And I, I just, it made me laugh because I thought of a moment where we're in his office and he has this kind of low office table. You've probably seen it. You've sat in the room, the round table with the medals mm-hmm. embedded into the table. Mm-hmm. I, do they still give medals for PGA Tour victories? I have no idea. But he mm-hmm. had a medal for, he had 62 medals in this table embedded into the into the wood, right. covered by glass. Yeah. So we're standing over it, and I'm looking at the table, looking at the medals, and I said, so Mr. Palmer, this is what are these medals? Oh, these are my PGA Tour victories. There's 62 in there. Wow, that's really neat. And there's two open spots. And I wonder if he's done the same you know, little one-liner with you before. He's probably done it hundreds of times. But I see those two open spots, and I said, well, wait a minute. There's two open here. Are those, are those medals being where, – where are they? And he said, oh. I left those there just in case I win a couple more. Uh, <laughs> this is, you know, four or five years ago. And I just love, I just, it's so funny, just delivered perfectly. And that was really the kind of, kind of day that I had with him. It was, it was an hour that flew by in a blink and uh, it was a blast. That's neat. Uh, and what was the second time? The second time uh, was a year or so later, I was at the par three, I was at master's week and I was writing about the par three contest. And I had done it the year before the Wednesday par three, and I talked to a bunch of fans and, and went that route. So this time I thought, you know what? I've got the same assignment one year later. It's a little exhibition. To do something different, I'm going to try to get time with Arnold Palmer and write it all through his day. So I, I was in touch with um, his manager, said, you know, let's do five minutes at lunch. And, and you know, that help you out. That's great. I, I'm <laughs> perfectly happy with five minutes at lunch. So that day, before the par three contest starts, he's sitting on the veranda under the umbrellas. And uh, the first thing that struck me was he wasn't close to the clubhouse. Those, those tables extend all the way near the gallery, to the gallery rope line, you know. And he was at one of those tables right on the ropes hmm. where, where fans could just stop by and say hi. And he was just, he was having a blast. And I'm standing off to the side kind of by the oak tree waiting for the manager to wave me over when it's, when it's fine, when Mr. Palmer's finished his sandwich. Uh, I believe it was a turkey club, and he was drinking Diet Coke with Grenadine. And I still remember because I asked the staff, and everybody on the staff knew what Mr. Palmer was having for lunch. Mm-hmm. And so you know that that sandwich was as good as they could possibly make it that mm-hmm. day. So anyway, I wait. I get the high sign, and and uh, I come over, you know, immediately. And I'd met so I'd met Mr. Palmer like six months or so earlier. And so I'm thinking maybe he'll kind of remember me. And just as I'm about to sit down, I, I hear him kind of arguing with his manager, saying, "I don't." I don't want to do this right now. I'm having, <laughs> having mm-hmm. lunch. And I, just mm-hmm. as I'm dropping, You're the guy. I say, yeah, I'm the guy. So I, I look at him like, hi, Mr. Palmer. It's nice to see you again. You know, we met six months ago at your place. Uh, I really appreciate the time, and I promise I'll be fast. And he looks at me, and he kind of – he still has this scowl, but he kind of flashes a little grin, and he says, you better be fast. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like, all right, I, I got a couple questions here, and uh, I'm going to make the most of it. And so I asked him about, about the par three and – a couple other little things that would help with my story, and then I, I was off. But then the, that was the, the other thing I remember about that par three contest is this is the one where uh, a storm rolled in. Mm-hmm. So the three he tees off with Jack and Gary Player. They play number one. He bogeys one. And I'm kind of doing this little piece, you know, just kind of Arnie's day, and uh, he birdies number two. And all of a sudden, you know, he's even par. And you just think, wouldn't it be cool if his name just popped on the leaderboard? Because it's still pretty early, yeah. you know, just to see A. Palmer, yeah. you know, land on that white scoreboard. And so they tee off on three, and Arnie sticks it to three feet. Whew. 
And I'm watching all of a sudden, all around me, the par three contest. Everybody's just, mm -hmm. Arnie's army is assembling again. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, he, he bounds off the tee and everybody's smiling. And this is about to get good. You know, uh -huh. this, is, this is the closest I've ever had to seeing Arnold Palmer, you know, like you said earlier, hitting balls in anger, hitting right. shots, you know. This is my one chance to see Arnold Palmer have right. one of these competitive moments. And so, I kid you not, Michael, we get to that green and that's where the skies just oh, darken, man. and there's that first little distant rumble, and they blew the horn. Oh. And so they take the guys off the course before Palmer hits that putt, and he kind of passes a group of us in the cart, and he's waving and waving. He looks at me, and he gives me one of those little points again. Like He's kind of waving to people and gives me kind of a point, a little scowl, like, uh -huh. oh, you again. You know, uh -huh. I didn't uh -huh. even get to finish my, I didn't get to finish, uh, my day. I, and I could tell he wanted to, really wanted to hit that putt. Uh -huh. and so I always, the way I wrote it that day was, if he, I wish he would have hit that putt, but I'll always think he would have made it. Uh -huh. Who knows what would have happened from uh -huh. there, So, How was he when you asked him the couple questions at lunch? Was he sort of going through the motions or was he? He was okay. I mean, he, yeah. was, he, was, he was really having a moment with the fans, and I, I felt truly bad interrupting it. I mean, when I had set yeah. up the lunch meeting, I didn't know he would sit right on the ropes yeah. on the veranda and be interacting with yeah. fans and kind of, you know, he really loved being Arnold Palmer. And uh, that was one of those moments. I, I was enjoying myself just hanging back, watching yeah. that scene, you know, of him having lunch, the whole staff behind the scenes, cater making sure they were on top of everything he wanted at the, you know, the Arnold Palmer table there was getting everything on time and as, as yes. to the highest quality possible. Yes. But uh, yeah, in that moment, it, it was kind of a blur because I knew... I knew he didn't want me to be there, and I, the last thing I want to do is inconvenience him. So it was just—it was nice to have a quick moment and then kind of get out of there gracefully. Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> glad you told the story because, um, you know, some—he's been a little bit sanitized in some of these accounts uh, yeah. uh, since his death, and he shouldn't be because he was a blood and guts person, of course. Sure. Um, and when you say, you know, he's a little bit of scowl, and he's telling the manager he doesn't want to do the interview, mm -hmm. and the interviews could be a disaster with him sometimes. I mean, he would just totally go through the motions uh, at times. Uh, so I think it's—it would be useful for people to know that uh, he was. A moody person, like we're all moody people to to some degree. In fact, I just did a thing with Robert Siegel from NPR, and he said, you know, was he always so sunny? No, he wasn't always so sunny. And the and 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 what I told Robert on on the radio show was that uh, in his in his private, not his private life, but his private conversation, he had. Um, it wasn't bitterness is definitely not the right word, but he could really not let go of his many runner-up finishes or close mm -hmm. calls in major championships, most particularly U.S. Opens. And uh, he, at one particular lunch uh, that I remember very clearly that I've written about, uh, he could recall chapter and verse all the years he didn't win U.S. Opens, and he I am certain he carried that to his grave. Uh, but also because he knew what it was like to win, he knew what it was like to lose, it gave him uh, an insight into the condition of other golfers, and now I'm thinking particularly of Tiger Woods, but also it gave him a sort of humanity uh, right. that you don't see as much, as much as I admire Jack. You don't see it as much in Jack. You don't see him as much in Tiger because he knew, now, he knew losing as well as winning, and um, he knew uh, heartbreak in his life, so it wasn't always... Uh, People have the sense now, oh, this grandfatherly, warm, gentle person. He wasn't he was grandfatherly, but he wasn't gentle and warm. Well, he was warm, but he wasn't always warm, and he wasn't always gentle, and he wasn't always grandfatherly. Uh, so I think it's important for people who are just starting to get to know Arnold now uh, after the fact to know uh, the, the many dimensions to the man.
I find I found him to be honest. You know, even even that day in the workshop, sure he had a message to deliver about his hospital, and he was going to make sure he got a couple of points in that he wanted to get in, which is why I was invited in the first place. But I just found him to be very, I guess, authentic. You say honest, I would say authentic. He wasn't, uh, I, and I think that just connected him throughout his life. You know, you hear the stories about um, this early career and just the way he, even through fans watching on TV, they just felt this connection to the man. And I think that he just was able to carry that through his whole life by just being himself, being honest. Yes. But you distracted me because you, I told my stories, and you got and you haven't told the story of you got to finish the story. Okay. Of your well, first, your so, first meeting. Well, and well, I'll, I'll say first, the first time I ever saw him was in 1979. I was caddying the week after the uh, the Kemper Open in uh, which then was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the Monday after that Kemper Open, I was caddying in a U.S. Open qualifier, and Arnold was 50, turning 50 that year. He was 49, turning 50. And um, and the USGA, in its wisdom, was requiring Arnold Palmer, this icon of the game, to qualify. They weren't going to give him a spot. And, um, and there was a lot of uh, hair pulling about whether that was appropriate or not. But Arnold, being Arnold, was like, you know, why shouldn't I qualify? Everybody else has to, you know, wasn't qualified for the, uh, for, the, for the U.S. Open otherwise. So there he was. And the guy I was catting for, Randy Erskine from Michigan. Do you happen to know that name? He was a legendary club yeah. pro. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he's won the Michigan uh, uh, Open and the Michigan Senior Open numerous times. Randy Erskine, very well known in Michigan golf. I'm certain he's a, must be a member of the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame. But in any event, um, uh, Randy was uh, paired behind him. And Randy was a journeyman, uh, a touring pro, and I was a kid on his bag who didn't know what he was doing. But Arnold was playing right in front of us, and I remember a couple of things distinctly about that. When Arnold came out of this white Cadillac to show up, it was like, holy cow, Arnold Palmer, I can't believe it. You know, I just couldn't believe I was seeing the man in the flesh. Uh-huh. And by the way, I never lost that feeling for Arnold. Um, I mean, he is, the uh, to me, the icon of icons. And when every time you saw him in person, even when he was physically diminished, it was like, holy crow, it's Arnold Palmer. But anyway, he popped out of that white Cadillac, and he had a big Cadillac dealership in in Charlotte at the time, if memory serves me. And uh, so he was playing right in front of us, and Randy Erskine, the guy I was catting for, said, oh, great, we got to play in Arnold's wake all day. Well, that was total sarcastic, uh, you know, putting on a brave front, because it was a thrill to any—look, if you were where Arnold Palmer was— you were in a good spot. And that's true for you and me as reporters. If we were in Latrobe, Brighton up Arnold, or we were in Bay Hill, or we were at the Masters, yeah, uh, we, were, we were in vicinity of Arnold, you were in the right spot because Arnold didn't get himself in bad spots. So that was the first yeah. time uh, I ever saw him. And then the first time I ever really talked to him, or the first time I did talk to him, was in 1987. And he was playing in a, uh, a senior event in, um, in Malvern, PA, on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And that's memorable to me and for a number of reasons. He was impossible. I was trying my best, but I didn't know what I was, was doing. It was a tough interview, huh? He was tough. He just wasn't into it, but he was fine. But I wasn't getting anything useful, but not that I would know then what was useful and what was not. Anyhow, but anyway, he had this dentist named Howdy Giles, who's a legend in, in some golf circles. And Howdy took a photograph of, uh, of, Ar- of me interviewing Arnold. And, uh, and later that night, uh, as I was telling you earlier, Jeff, I had uh, – uh, a date with a woman who has now been my wife of 27 uh, years. Yeah. 
and um, so uh, um, so I treasure uh, that memory. And then over the years, I've gotten to see Arnold uh, often in different settings, including on his plane without flying in his plane, but once he invited me into his plane just to show it off, and he was proud. I mean, he bought that plane. He was very, it's a new plane very, at the time? It was it's probably a fairly new plane at the time. I don't know otherwise why he would have wanted me to see it, but it was, I don't know anything about planes, but I think it was a Citation 10. Is that a well-known kind of plane? I really don't know. But I do remember you could smell the leather seats the second you got in there. And then when I sat in one of the chairs and there was a little throw blanket on the back, it wasn't that polyester thing you get on American Airlines. No, it was a cashmere. It, never is, is it? it was a cashmere blanket. <laughs> uh, so it was really, it was really quite luxe to a guy who really had no need for luxe in his life. It wasn't his, uh, his thing at all. But that was, uh, that was the one thing he, he was very willing to, uh, to spend money on. And you probably know how he lived, um, for years, he lived in a very modest uh, one-story ranch house mm-hmm. in Latrobe. And then in Bay Hill, he lived in a condo. And this is a guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, And I think that was part of his appeal, too. Yeah. What did you learn about him? You spent quite a bit of time for, with him over the last, what, year and a half, two years for your book? Yeah, well, going back four years, yes. Four, okay, four yes. years. You probably spent as much time, I would, I would wager, as any writer in the world. I, mean, you, you I wouldn't know, but I, I, I definitely had a lot did, of quality time learn, with him. What did you learn about him in, in those last interviews that maybe you didn't know before? Was there anything about him? Well, you're nice him? to ask that, Jeff. And uh, he knew and understood that what I was trying to do is uh, what you're talking about, Jeff, as you know, but the listeners wouldn't. I was reporting a book mm-hmm. um, that was an intimate account of the lives of golfers who have meant a lot to me. And Arnold was high on that list, if not first on the list. Well, he literally was first on that list. He was the first guy I saw for the book. And, uh, and Ken Venturi was as well. And there was a I'm not, let's not get into the whole thing now because it's, it's long and, and cumbersome to explain. But um, Ken basically accused Arnold of cheating in the 1958 Masters. And, um, and Ken took it to his grave. And Ken couldn't let go of it. And I was investigating, you know, with this crime scene that's now ancient and covered with dirt and trying to figure out actually what happened. And there was a lot of complicated emotion there between the two men because Arnold robbed Ken of the life that he was supposed, that Ken thought that he was supposed to have, except for he didn't have Arnold's charm, he didn't have Arnold's charisma, he didn't have Arnold's drive, he didn't have Arnold's talent. He was close in yeah. the, on those things, but not to the same degree. And just, just so viewers are clear when you say robbed it was a rules it was a ruling it was a ruling and 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 a controversial ruling ruling, but in the end not really so controversial because it was it was at augusta national it was an embedded ball situation he got a bad ruling he sort of took the rules into his own hands but there was sort of a mechanism within the rules of golf by which he could do that and then Bobby Jones, who ran the tournament, adjudicated it and decided in Arnold's favor. So there really was nothing there. But, the, the, but to answer your question, what did I learn about him, was there would have been many, many opportunities for Arnold to do anything other than take the high road on Ken, and he didn't. He wouldn't go down that road, even when Ken would get, at times, almost vicious with Arnold. Um, uh, he never gave into that. And then Ken died. In the period when I was reporting uh, uh, th- this this ancient episode, and he was so gracious uh, about Ken in his uh, in his death, and he he wrote a statement with with the help of a very fine uh, uh, golf writer, um, and um, it's it, it's spectacular. 
in its generosity. And, and the reason that the story is even worth telling now is because, and this has been said by others, but I believe it to be really true, is he never put the game above himself. He always thought the game, the game gave him everything he had in his life. And I think the number one quality that any of us in golf or out of golf can take from the life and times of Arnold Palmer is gratitude for what you have. He had it in spades, and he expressed it every day of his life. Um, and I know very, very few people um, who are capable of doing that and did it as well as Arnold did. What uh, do you have an all-time favorite interaction? We've got it. We got. I got parts of a couple stories, but do you have one where you just when people when people meet you and they find out, oh, Michael Bamberg. So you've met Arnold Palmer. What, yes. Tell me what that was like. What's what's your lead story? What's your one that that pleases pleases your friends or is the the well? The, I'll tell one. Stops the party. Yes. And, yeah. I just told this to Ryan. Uh, can you bleep out a word later? Yes. We okay. Have, we have you have bleep capability. Te- technological capabilities here on the very Golf good Golf podcast. Okay, I've told this story before, but people sometimes find it funny. Um, he endorsed a Callaway driver that was legal for play. I think it was called the ERC two, named for Ely Callaway. It was legal for play everywhere in the world except for the United States and Mexico, because uh, it was legal under RNA rules, as they were then, but not USGA rules. Oh, okay. And uh, Jim Harry, our former uh, golf editor, uh, uh, took a strenuous objection to the fact that Arnold had endorsed this club. And uh, Gary Van Sickler, a colleague, wrote a piece about it. And the headline on the piece was, The King is Dead, or you know, it was a, it was something oh, very really crystal like that. He really went for it, huh? The he really, really went for it. And uh, because he was endorsing this club, that was legal for play everywhere except the United States and Canada and Mexico. So, uh, and Arnold was pissed. So, uh, so, and we got word that he was. And, and let's just back up for a minute. Arnold won. A USAM in 1954, the year that Sports Illustrated was founded, he got on, that's correct, and then he was Sportsman of the Year in 1960, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, his heyday and Sports Illustrated's heyday were one and the same. He, so he had a very close relationship with the magazine. He would have known you know, Dan Jenkins and Herb Wind, our first golf editor, uh, uh, very well, Mark Mulvoy, one of our other editors. But anyway, so he was, he never expected to be treated this way by uh, Sports Illustrated. So Jim called me and said, you know, call Arnold and take his temperature. So I got Arnold on the phone with relative ease. And, uh, and uh, I said, uh, Arnold, this is uh, Michael Bamberger from Sports Illustrated. And he said, I know who you are, and evidently you don't give a who you write for these days, which, you know, was so funny and so to the point, and tr- as you were saying earlier, truthful. Yeah. A lot of his humor was truthful, you know. You know, uh, he quit playing the Masters at one point because they were uh, the, the chairman at the time, I guess it would have been uh, Hootie Johnson, was uh, writing letters to the old timers to the Doug Fords and that generation um you know who were struggling to break 80 uh you know you're basically your services are no longer leader needed so the you know the question Arnold is well you know why are you no longer going to play in the masters and he said you know because I'm afraid I might get a letter mm-hmm. well Arnold was never getting a letter but you know just the fact that he thought he might uh was so 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 interesting but anyway to, to I'll, I'll tell you one that's very personal to me I don't know if it'll translate to the to the, uh, to the listeners out there in Golfton, but um, one time after a, uh, a lunch in Latrobe, um, uh, Arnold was in his truck uh, or his Cadillac SUV, really more accurately, and I absentmindedly had my right arm on his windowsill, and he, my right arm, and he took his right hand and put it in the middle of my 
right forearm and held it there. And I know you've written about and talked about uh, the impressiveness of the man's hand. He's got a grip. He really has a grip. But it wasn't so much the grip. It was just sort of the... Um, it was just sort of the person-to-person connection that the man made that made uh, such an impact me at that moment. I mean, we, it was not, we were not intimate friends by any means. I was a reporter, and he was a subject, and I wrote him up as best I could and as truthfully as I could. But there was probably a little bit more of a connection there than that, or I don't think he would have held my arm that way. And, uh, and I know that other people had that actually a very similar interaction. It was interesting yesterday on Golf Channel, or well, it, this would be, it would have been Sunday night of his of his the, you know shortly after he uh, died on Sunday, and uh, Fred Couples uh, called in Golf Channel, and the first thirty eight seconds were just uh, uh, Fred sobbing, yeah, uh, unable I to talk about it. Was, was, that was real, emotional. That was yeah, intense. It was yeah. intense. That was intense. Uh, for you, you spent uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Those are great stories. I want to ask you about the obituary. It's a very moving tribute that's currently up on golf.com. I just want to ask you a little bit about the process of writing that. Uh, how did you go about unpacking all of these layers to Arnold Palmer's life? How long did you take? And, uh, and just sort of how you got to this, this beautiful piece that we're now reading. Wow, Jeff, how incredibly generous of you. Thank you for that. Um, uh, I actually went to see Arnold to interview him for the obituary, and some of the material in there is from that uh, from that um, that interview. Did you tell him it's it, this is I'm writing? Your I obituary? you know I told his people that uh, that that was uh, uh, that was the purpose. As best I know, they didn't tell him that. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, I think he got the message that um, I didn't. I didn't come to hear the stories that he told before. That I, uh, and um, and on this particular visit uh, that I'm speaking of, I went with a, a close friend of mine named Mike Donald, who played the tour for years. Um, and Arnold would have known Mike, and uh, I think in the I think having Mike there uh, created a uh, intimacy and a golfer to golfer bond that allowed Arnold, or almost maybe better to say. Uh, required Arnold to have a level of candor in the conversation because he knew he couldn't pull the wool over Mike's eyes because Mike knew too much. Player to player. Player kind of to player. player. Yeah. Ex- exactly right. So so some of the uh, some of the intimate things from Arnold or just sort of my understanding of the man came out of that. When was I, that? That would have been four years ago for sure so because started, it was right after the project. Yeah, if it was it was after it was, was right after the Ryder Cup at at, uh, at Medina. And um I feel like as a reporter, Jeff, and I'm sure you feel similarly, the more time you can spend with a subject and really not just hear the verbatim quotes that you can use later in the story and plug them in there, but actually take the measure of the person and what's important to them, that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And you know that was the beauty of, of Sports Illustrated, and I would like to use the present tense when I say that, is go out and tell us who the person really is. And um, and it was in that regard. So, you know, I've had, I'm just guessing here, a dozen or more sit-down lunches, not sit-down lunches because you always sit down for lunch, but long lunches with Arnold where he just talked. And it wasn't a formal interview, but it was like a sense, an opportunity to really get to know the man. So in that sense, to write, you know, a couple thousand words about him 
in, in the obituary was really sort of um, years in the making, going and a lot of personal emotion of uh, what he meant to me uh, in my own life. And, you know, I take what we talked about, Jeff, just a minute ago of can you express that sense of gratitude, express it to others, but also live your life like you mean it. I take that very, very, very much to heart. And uh, I don't think I do a good job at it, but I would like to do a better job of it. And I find him, I find the, I find the, the example of Arnold Palmer inspiring in that regard. Yeah. So four years ago, you had your first interview with him to write this obituary. Was that the only time you went in there specifically for that, for that assignment? You know, yeah. I would say um, all, the, all the times I saw Arnold. And in retrospect, going back to seeing him in 1979 when I was catting in, in, in the tournament. So like in my own reporting life, Joe, I don't think this will be interesting to anyone other than you, reporter, reporter. But I don't really distinguish so much between my reporting life and my non-reporting life. To me, it's all my reporting life because uh, th- that's why I identify myself as a reporter. And I feel like um, I'm always trying to learn something that I can use. I don't mean that in an opportunistic sense. I mean in the sense of trying to understand somebody or something. Um, so, you know, I know this is a real gray area for people listening, but you understand what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, of course I do. Uh, there's you're, the, obs- there's- you're an observer, as we all are. You have to be. And you file away moments and things that it's not necessarily about that you're on the record, you're off the record, but it's more of a feel, right? It's you you're, it. you're you observing, it. you're you're especially someone like Arnold Palmer who you spend so much time with, you're you're putting together the pieces of of a character. You're you're figuring out who this person is and so yeah, I I completely get it, but that's it's interesting to know that that's that's how you did this. It wasn't just all right, I'm going to walk in with this obituary assignment, try to find some new quotes and then go back and try to put it all together as legacy, but you had you felt like you had enough uh, observations and thoughts and things that you could just take your whole experience, which uh, I think it shows in the piece. Thank why you. Why the piece reads so well. Thank you. That's very, yeah. very generous of you. Thank you, Jeff. Michael, you've done a lot of media today. Uh, is there any Arnold Palmer memory or story or moment that you have not shared yet that you've been dying to get out? Huh. I want to give you that opportunity as we wrap up the golf.com podcast. Well, you, you know, there's One last moment. <laughs> There, there, truthfully, there will be 27 things that I could rattle off right now, and uh, and I won't do that. But I just will tell one. I got it from Nicholas. I love this image of you know the early 60s when there wasn't the big money that there is in professional golf that there is now, and uh, and and Arnold was a pilot in a single engine prop plane, maybe not single engine, but a small prop plane, no co-pilot. And, uh, and Arnold figured out that he could make more money with Jack than without him. In other words, if they did an exhibition together, the two of them, it was better than just Arnold by himself. And he'd go to Columbus, you know, where Jack lived, or, or South Florida, where Jack uh, uh, was later, and go pick him up in the plane, put the clubs in the back seat, go fly around this great, beautiful, big country of ours, go land someplace, you know, land for lunch, get back up in the air, go someplace else, and just say to yeah, these two men flying around this country with the golf clubs in the backseat. Yeah, absolutely. I love that image. And um, and it was sort of like they're taking control of the situation. In other words, uh, according to the rules of the PGA of America at the time, which ran uh, the, the tour, which didn't wasn't really called the tour then, 
uh, there was only a limited number of weeks where you could do exhibitions. And Arnold, who was very driven by, uh, you know, as a child of the Depression, very driven by, uh, by the, uh, the desire to make money, uh, was like he was going to seize every one of those days. And Jack the same. And, uh, you know, they banked a lot on, on those tours. And uh, anyway, that's straight from Jack. Jack could tell it far better than I the next time with Jack. But uh, uh, that is an image that I, that I love. Well, Michael, thank you for all the stories today. Uh, this is a tough day for all of us who live and work and love golf, but uh, it's it's one way to, to honor the king is to share the stories and celebrate his life. So we appreciate you jumping on the golf.com podcast. And to all of you, thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you next time 